Hi, everybody. Welcome to Drag Racing's Golden Era. As usual, we are glad that you are here with us tonight. We've got a great guest with us tonight. Jim Walther is going to be joining us here in just a second. Uh, this is the guy who won the world championship in 1972 and holds the distinction of uh, being the first rear engine dragster to win a world title. But, uh, you know, Jim was not a one hit wonder. There were many, many things that Jim did throughout his racing career. And the special edition uh, front engine dragster is one of the most beautiful dragsters that was ever put together. You know, a Woody Gilmore car with an Ed Pink motor and Cerny paint. It was just you know, it was just a, a work of art as all these cars were back then. So it's a real great treat to welcome Jim to the program tonight. And Jim, welcome. Thank you for being here. We really appreciate it. Thank you for asking me, Randy. I mean, I'm very pleased to be on the Golden Era of Drag Racing. I, uh, I feel as I'm one of the privileged guys that got to do it. Well, you know, that everybody that I talk to, there's there's nothing but fond memories of that time and i you know i know you know this was an era when two three guys could get together build a top fuel dragster and go racing you know it was just a great era and it's it's an era that's passed and is never coming back unfortunately well i agree with that i mean a good example of that is today we have a hard time getting 16 cars for a 16 car show and in indianapolis in 1970 or 71 we had 107 top fuel cars for a 32 car show that, that, you know, I, I was, I was not old enough to witness that. And, and a lot of the people that are watched the program here were not old enough to witness that. So it's one of them things that I wish I could have seen, you know, the U S nationals back in the day when it was a 32 car show and hundred cars would show up. I can't even imagine that. Well, <laughs> it, it was quite astonishing that you didn't go back to the pit. You made a qualifying pass and you got down the end of Indianapolis raceway park at the nationals there. And you got on the road course and worked on your car with the front wheels stuck up on a tailgate and a jack under the back of it. And you pulled the pan and took a look or whatever you had to do to stay in line because well, you were only going to get two runs a day. I, Mike Couch told me one time, he goes, you know, we had like this collection of uh, 916s and 716s wrenches in our pocket from having them laying all over the starting line in the staging area. <laughs> That, that would be very true. <laughs> well, Jim, why don't we why don't we get started with this and and let's let's just go back to the beginning. When when where how did you get involved in drag? Where'd your passion for the sport start? Well, when I was a young man, a young boy, I should say, I think I went to my first automobile race in 1949. Was I went with my dad and a cousin to uh, a hundred mile dirt track race in Detroit. And then also in later 49 in Northeast Ohio, there was a NASCAR race at the mile track at Bainbridge Speedway. And so I saw actually a, a open wheel car and a NASCAR race in the same year. And after that, uh, I started to try to find all the, any magazine I could find. And basically the only thing through the fifties that we had was Speed Age. That was the only magazine that was on the market that you could get. And, uh, of course, Chris Economaki's uh, weekly deal there, yeah, and uh, which was that covered everything. So, by the time I was 14 years old, 15 years old, I knew I was going to have race cars and drive race cars somehow, some way. I mean, I just knew it. And I mean, that was my desire. And uh, as I got into high school, uh, I did not have the newest car in high school, but I darn sure had the fastest one. I had a Soup up, souped up 50 olds of 1957 
uh, the first racetrack I ever went to was Holland Drag Strip near Youngster or Warren, Ohio. And uh, that was my first uh, foray into drag racing, actually. But an awful lot of street racing went on in those days. So it was a it was pretty neat. I was a I was a kid in high school that had my own parking place at the big boy restaurant because all the guys that had hot cars that would drag race every night were parked on one side. And I, I was welcome to that group, which is kind of a privilege at that time of my life. A big boy restaurant. There's a name I haven't heard in a long time. <laughs> I don't know. I'm having, I, well, uh, Jim, I'm having visions of uh, American Graffiti, the movie. It's, it's, it sounds like that sort of deal. Well, it was that way everywhere, though. I mean, uh, we made our rounds from town to town to drive in to drive in to drive up in front of a guy and point at him and you hit the street. You know, I mean, that's how it went. And uh, uh, nobody ever got caught, really, because the cop cars weren't fast enough to catch us. <laughs> and they did not have good radios in those days either. Well, I mean... In, in your area there, you were in Ohio, correct? Yes, Northeast yeah. Ohio. So North in your area there, how many drag strips were there actually in 1957? There couldn't have been that many, were there? Uh, Akron. Yeah. At the old, at the old Air, Akron Airport. And uh, then Holland Drag Strip down near Warren. Uh, Dragway 42 was just... I think Dragway 42 was going at that time, but very early on. And uh, I went in the Army in 1958, and they built Thompson when I went, and it was in Germany, and, and that was only about 15 miles from my house. Okay. So uh, that was my first place I went when I got out of the Army. I went to the drag strip. When did you get out of the Army? What year? 1960. September of 1960, and a, a little story about that that will fit in here is uh, – in September, late September, early October, there was a guy by the name of Don Garlitz <laughs> talking about on the radio coming to Thompson Dragway. Well, of course, it was all gas dragsters before I went to the Army. There really was no fuel at that time. That van was on. Uh, he's running nitro announcing on the radio. So anyway, I go out to Thompson there and I watched Connie Swingle, who was driving Garlett's car because he was all burnt up yeah. at that time in his arms. And uh, Swingle went 198 miles an hour in the fall of 1960 at Thompson Dragway. And it was fog over the thing, place I was, and that sound and the smell and the noise. And I said, well, darn, I got to have me one of these things. And <laughs> that, that car and Swingle's ashes are in Garlett's museum and the placard that is by it uh, tells about the speed and the date and everything right on that car. And I witnessed it that night, but that was my first time I ever saw a top fuel car run. And, and you sound like the rest of us. So all it took was that uh, summer foggy air with a blast of nitromethane in your face and you're hooked forever because that's, that's what happened to me. Well, exactly. And and the funny part of it was my ambition was to drive midgets, sprint cars, and champ cars. That's what I wanted to do more than the dragsters at the, in the beginning. Yeah. And, uh, but I got involved with a, an army. I had two years active army reserve when I got out also. So I met a guy whose dad owned a midget 
and it was a 48 Curtis with a V860 in it. So I got working with them and got to play with that some to begin with. And then in 1961, we put a little aluminum F85 Oldsmobile V8 in it. And man, that turned that thing into a rocket. <laughs> Except on these, every place we ran was the old, uh, like a fair track and a half a mile dirt track that you couldn't see 30 feet in front of you and two by four guardrails and whatever. And I thought, this is pretty, pretty dangerous, but you know, it's, at that time in your life, you're not worried too much about danger. And, uh, but then I got going more to around the drag racing and uh, a guy near me uh, had a fuel car. So I started going with him and started playing with that stuff. And uh, I think it was 1963, I bought my first top fuel car. And uh, it, it, 64, it was early 64. And a guy from my area whose father owned eight newspapers uh, was going to college in Phoenix and he traded a boat tail roadster for this top fuel dragster. And he brought it back. It's all in pieces when he came back with it and he never run it. He had it. Now, what are you going to do with that? Well, I don't know. I don't know anything about it. No. And so I bought it and the motor was broke in it, but all the blower, the injectors, the mag, the whole, the whole thing was there. And I come to find out later it was a Jungle 4 car. Now, I'm not sure what year it was one of the Jungle 4, which was Jackson, Mooneyham, Ferguson, and Faust, and uh, put it together. And I figured, well, the last time this thing was running, the, inject the injectors had to be right on it. So we put it together and uh, took it down to Dragway 42 and pushed it off and thing lit. No, I'll be damned. Huh? This is good. <laughs> <laughs> and. Uh, so I had bought a fire suit and I got in the thing and I left the start line and the dragway 42 at that time had neon lights instead of a Christmas tree. There was three lights it online, get set and go. Well, it says online, get set and go. And I'm sitting there and I said, well, dummy, either step on the pedals of this thing or shut it off. And I stepped on the pedals. And of course, at that time was 134 inch wheelbase car. And you smoke the tires for the full 13, 20. Well, I, I guess I drove it probably seven, 800 feet and shut it off. And, uh, okay, that was all right. Come back and we made another run with it. And I went a little faster and farther this time. And second pass on it, I broke a blower belt. And it comes over and gets me right across the goggles. And I can't see nothing. Well, I pulled a chute and I got it stopped. And I mean, I'm, I'm pretty shook up because I couldn't see at that speed. And I know that was going faster than I'd ever been in my life. And uh, so anyway, that was my first outing with a top fuel car. Second run, I wore a blower belt across my goggles. <laughs> so I, I, I just out of curiosity, what, what was the percentage of nitro you guys were running back then? You remember? Yeah, I think we had something like 85 in it. Oh, wow. Okay. I didn't realize you guys were running that, that much nitro oh, yeah. at that time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What, you know, the setup of those engines back then, I mean, what, what was the engine you were running? Was it a 392 or something? What were you running? 354. Okay. It was a 354 that I put in it there. It had a 331 in it, and I put a 354 in it when I put it all back together because the other stuff was all broke, and I needed to buy new stuff anyway. Well, 
maybe not new, but it was good use. (laughs) Well, you (laughs) know, the amazing amazing part about this era, and this is for the younger viewers out there, you could go to a junkyard and get, let's say, a 392 for 50 bucks, and you had a race-ready engine right there ready to go. It was an amazing time. Yes, it. Uh, I I wasn't quite as brave as a lot of those guys that would run the stock block and the stock, the stock uh, crankshaft and stock rods. I at least put aluminum rods in. It. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of stories about splitting the main webs and having a crankshaft drop out of the bottom of those 392s. That were, you know, there's a lot of stories about that. It's it's, it, but you know, I don't know when. If the if the 390, I mean the 392 really came to prominence in you know especially in the front engine drag cars in the later 60s. I don't know if it was so much in Ohio, but I know out on the West Coast it was. Well, yeah, I mean a good running one. There was some Oldsmobiles, there was some Chevrolets. Uh, uh, that's about it in our area up there. But there was there was more top fuel cars around the Northeast up in it. Well, Midwest, I should say, I guess mostly. Uh, uh, but there was more top fuel cars than people even realized that guys that only ran local and never went anywhere else. And, uh, uh, but of course we didn't have the 392 until 56 and 57. Yeah. I mean, 57 and 58, excuse me, 57 and 58. And so uh, by the time I had the 392s in there, uh, I guess I ran the 354 up until I got this, special edition car in 69. Uh, they were all 354s, but I I did go 202 miles an hour with that 134-inch wheelbase at Thompson yes. in 1966. I, it was the first time I went 200 miles an hour. Of course, they're spinning the tires from one end to the other, you know, I mean, and that was a, you know, when, when you're that young yet and you're going 200 miles an hour, that was quite a milestone. <laughs> yes, it was, especially in that short of a wheelbase car. I can't even imagine that. Well, it was a woody car, so I mean, it handled beautiful. Yeah. And that's why I bought the in '69 when I well in '68 in the '68 when I ordered the special edition. That's why I went to Woody because that that car ran and handled so well. I thought, well, and I had engine. I had you know Lakewood chassis was right in Cleveland. Yeah. And I'm so that I had I had stuff and Logies, but I decided I wanted the Woody car again. And uh, and Anna built a body and Cerny painted it and Kelly lettered it. So it was uh, it was a I didn't realize it at the time, Randy. But and 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 Dakin brought the Pat Dakin brought this up not too long ago. I I said, well, I didn't have any damn money back then. He said, Walter, you had the best equipment there was in our area. Absolutely. Because you had money. I mean, I, I think about that car that you built in 68, 69, Woody chassis, Cerny doing the paint. You had an Ed Pink motor in it. I mean, uh, it doesn't get any better than that at that era. Well, here's kind of how that happened. Uh, the guy I bought the first car from was John Rowley. I mentioned his dad's name before, Rowley Publications. They owned eight newspapers in Northeast Ohio. So... John got a hold of his father, and his father gave me $7,000 toward that new car. Well, when I went to California to pick it up, I, with all of them we've mentioned before here, and the complete Ed Pink in it, all plumbed and everything, when we rolled it in the trailer, I had left $14,800 on the West Coast. 
So, and that's what I brought back. And I think at that time it was a, a, probably the highest car, highest dollar car to ever come east of the Mississippi. Uh-huh. You couldn't buy anything any better. And it, it ran like it was an expensive car too, right from the get go. I mean, it was very quick and very stable and, uh, it was an absolute dream to drive and started out with the, uh, I didn't start out with just a 392 either. It was a 392 block, but it had a 3.8 stroker in it. So that was 437 inches that you never told, told anybody about. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it well, was all really good stuff. And, uh, and, and that was my start of really touring with the car. It was uh, early 69. So you mentioned uh, Lake Lakewood chassis was right up by you. Did you know Joe Schubeck very well? Oh, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. And Joe, uh, we, we talked with Joe. You know, I actually, uh, in October, we're head, my wife and I are heading out to uh, Las Vegas for a weekend of debauchery out there. Oh, and uh, when, when I'm out there, we're going to hop up by Joe Schubeck and he's going to take me yeah. for a ride in his street rod. So uh, Joe Schubeck, you know, in that area, in the, in the Ohio area, you know, not only with the chassis company, but later with the Lakewood uh, bell housing, you know, he, he was something else in that area. Well, yeah, I mean, well, we had, you know, it's funny that uh, people don't consider Cleveland area much of a racing community, but we had Lakewood, we had Mr. Gasket, we had Lee Eliminators. Uh, there was so many parts manufactured for racing at that time, oval track and drag racing in, in Ohio area because we're... I lived up there was an absolute mecca of machine shops. Yeah. Now, not the west side of Cleveland, but you go from Cleveland 30 miles east, everywhere is small businesses. And it's still that way today. And uh, I left there and uh, moved to North Carolina here in 1999 just to get out of the snow. <laughs> <laughs> so that, I mean, that area with those businesses you're talking about, were they all feeding the, uh, Michigan uh, auto industry. Is that what they were doing there? Well, a lot of them were. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Of course, you know, in Cleveland, you had General Motors, you had Fisher body was in Cleveland. You had the, the Cleveland engine or the Cleveland tank or engine plant for Ford. Uh, it, it, there was just Cleveland was such a big mecca of machining and stuff. We had Republic steel and, uh, and all the steel mills and, uh, and, uh, Oh, Eaton Axle, and I just you can go on and on and on on the big factories there. White Truck was there at that time. Uh, uh, so many things were made in, in that area that, uh, and people don't, don't realize what a, how good it was for us to have all that stuff. Yeah. Which and, get anything made. Yeah. And I, you know, one of the, one of the other guys that come out of that whole, that whole corridor through there, Connie Coletta was also, you know, with his, I mean, he, he had that camera, you know, the Ford products, right? Uh, sponsorship right out of Ford. That was a huge deal when it happened back then. Absolutely. Yeah. So, I, I, I never, well, uh, really the only sponsor I ever had was at Raleigh Publications. That was on that special edition car for three years. Uh, uh, I'd run that car 69, 70, and 71 and was very, very successful with that car. Well, let's, let's talk about that quick. You, first of all, (laughs) again, no sponsorship. It's one of those things that in our modern era of drag racing, it's hard to imagine you could campaign a top fuel car without major sponsorship, but you weren't the only one. There were many, many people running these cars out there, but the match race scene back then, let's talk about that. I mean, 
the match race scene was huge. That was where the money was really made. It wasn't made on national events because there weren't that many back then. You guys went everywhere. Well, match racing, when funny cars came in 69 and 70 and stuff like that, that almost killed the top fuel match racing deal. If I had to build a funny car in 69 instead of this uh, another top fuel car, I would have been uh, financially way better than I was. Yeah. Uh, but that isn't what I want to do. I started with the midgets and then the car. I just wanted an open cockpit car. That's That, that was me. That was my ambition. That's what I want to do. And that's why I stayed with it. But uh, in 70, uh, Tom Chastain and uh, Jack Red started that pro fuel circuit on the East Coast. And they got a hold of me. I was the furthest one west, but I had to drive a lot farther than those guys did. But that was a money saver for us. We put reversers and starters on them. And so we had an eight-car show bought in, and that, that made us good money. And we could do that a couple times a week. And, uh, of course, we all worked and had jobs. So you'd have to leave your job to go race and try to get back for the next morning to go to work, you know. <laughs> and who, who, who are some of the names that were running that? Who are the, who are the names that were involved in that? Oh, the, well, let's see. We had Eddie Correccia with Sarger Sierra driving it. Uh, Jimmy King, King and Marshall, uh, myself, Richie Broughton, uh, the Jade Grenade, Tom Chastang, uh, American Way, uh, Jim and Allison Lee run with us some. Um, Jim or uh, Larry Butcher, not Booker, but Larry Butcher from the East Coast. Okay, he'd run some with us. Uh, so there was there was probably six of us that ran basically all the time, and then other guys would fill in oh. when we'd have to. But uh, we made we made good money with that. We put on a damn good show for them, and uh, guaranteed them everybody'd make passes. You know, if the semifinal round, the quick Quick, quickest car of the losing first round was in lot was in line with a starter on it, ready to go if somebody broke. So you you had you had a full show every time we did it. So, but it got a little hectic. I mean, uh, one good example is we run a Saturday night at Adco, New Jersey, and I won at Adco that night. And so I was the last one to re- leave the racetrack. And at two o'clock the next afternoon, we had to be in Saint Pete, Quebec, Montreal. And so you get out of the racetrack at one in the morning and you got to run at two o'clock next afternoon in Montreal. So that's some pretty hectic rides between them there, but. Yeah. And that was, that wasn't in the days of the comfortable semi hauling your, hauling your car around. Oh, no. Backing up just a little bit from that era though. Uh, when in 69, I started running the UDRA circuit, which was very big up in your area up there. Yes, it was. And Jim Paoli and myself both come out in 69 with new cars. And we, well, we both had real good cars and we started running against those guys. And basically we had two tenths to three tenths on them wherever we went because our cars were much better. And and we had, I don't want to say better. That's not a nice thing to say, I guess. Uh, Maybe we had a little more knowledge behind what was going on. How's that? Because, then we, we had started in, in a 68 with the slipping clutches and whatever. And 
I was one of those guys that I understood the physics of how a slip and clutch would work and what you had to do on a slick racetrack to make it work. So, and that was to my advantage because I understood that. And I was, uh, Hayes Clutches come to Cleveland at that time. And Frank Carstensen, who just passed away a couple of weeks ago, Frank was a very good friend. And uh, uh, I worked with him very closely on the, on the new clutch stuff. Every time something new came out, I had it from him. So, but, but we ran that UDRI circuit was, was very good too. But I was, I was not somebody, Randy, that ever chased points. I didn't do that. Uh, I ran where I could make a dollar because if I didn't make a dollar, I wasn't going to run my car again. And so that was very important to me to, to, to go where I could make a dollar. And uh, it, as long as I had enough points to like get invited to the world finals and stuff like that, like the UCR, UCS meets and our US, what the heck's it called? Uh, WCS meet. There you go. Yep. Right, go. WCS for National Ragsters so that you get invited to go to the end of the year deal. Why that was good. And so that, that's, that's how I had to run my program. Well, you know, um, one of the things that you talked about was, you know, with the, with the slipper clutches that came out, uh, uh, another thing that people of our modern era don't really understand about the tracks back then is there wasn't a whole lot of track, but actually there was no track prep that went on. You guys had Correct. to go out there and figure out how to get that car from A to B, you know, riding the clutch, holding the brake, trying to get that thing down the track without spinning off the side of the track or lighting her up or blowing your engine. Well, it, it, the first time I actually ever saw any track preparation to any amount was at Ontario and I think 70 70 something in Ontario. And anyway, I saw Steve Gibbs out there with a garden sprayer spraying some stuff on a track. But other than that, it, it, like at Indy, when you had five, you always had five runs at Indy. So the further the race went, the longer the rubber tracks went out onto the track and the quicker you'd go as the, as the meet went on. But we had to lay our own rubber down and back up on our own tracks to do that. And uh, uh, it, was, it was a lot of, it was tricky. We couldn't, we couldn't use the horsepower they can make today yeah. in that situation back there. Heck, the tires were only like 11 inches wide anyway. And you only ran on about four to five inches of it. In a front motor car, you'd sit there going down the track. You could see the haze coming off the tire, but the patch was only about that wide where it was hitting the track. No I, I don't remember exactly when it when it began to happen with uh, guys mixing up bleacher concoctions to pour underneath the tires. I do remember that in 1970 at the U.S. Nationals, mm -hmm. uh, they Snake was pouring stuff underneath his tires already at that point in the bleach box. So, I, when did that when did that all start to happen? Did and did it make a difference? Oh yes, at the end of '68, it did because we used to do it to get the tires hot and spinning just so that we could leave our rubber going out on the track. That was the idea behind it. Now all they got to do is clean the tire. Yeah. They seat the clutch with it. And we used to have to seat our own clutches and stuff. Now they worry about not seating the clutch until they do the burnout. Yeah. And um, that was, believe it or not, that's what the dry hops were for when you'd back up after your burnout and do a dry hop. That was to seat the clutch hard. And uh, it was all a progression of the, you wouldn't, 
if you didn't have the tire you had today, you wouldn't need the traction compound you got. If you didn't have the traction compound, you wouldn't need the tire you got. I mean, it's all hand in hand, you know. Yeah. And uh, well, I, well I, you know, the, the 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 other Mike, here, here, while you're talking about this. The, the the U.S. Nationals still stays in my mind here. You know, other than the question Mike Couch told me to ask you, I, he asked me another question yesterday too. He said, "Hey, when you're when you're talking to Jim, get him to talk about what it was like to show up at the U.S. Nationals and not break any parts and get through an entire race with a hundred other cars there, maintaining your car without breaking parts." I mean, that you know now they basically rebuild the engine from top to bottom between each run, and you guys went right. five runs. Well, actually, well, I, more than that. Well, I can give you a good example. When I won the world finals in Amarillo, because I still had this, I was the only one there with an iron 92, stroker 92, and iron heads. Everybody else had gone to the Donovans and the late models and whatever and was starting to get some aluminum stuff in there. Well, we had four qualifying passes. So that's four runs there. We went five rounds. And I never heard an engine part in five rounds. Uh, I broke on the final run against Clayton Harris. He'd already blown up, and I was further down the track when I, I broke a main shaft. And when that broke, I, I broke, blew the clutch up in the bell. I was going to kick it out, but it was shrapnel in there. And uh, uh, actually, a hunk of it come out and blew the left rear tire and liner out. Yeah. And I, I, went, I went through the lights. Well, I was sideways. Let's put it that way. <laughs> but uh, I didn't hurt. I didn't hurt any engine parts. I mean, so there was nine runs on the motor, and I didn't hurt any engine parts. Now, nothing drastic. I changed a couple pistons in that nine runs because I collapsed a ringland or something. But as far as, as far as that goes, and and I had I had ninety eight percent in it. That's because it's altitude in Amarillo. Yeah. I had ninety eight percent in it, and. Uh, uh, I was way over, I had 50 over on the, on the overdrive on the blower. I think it was 52 over actually. Wow. It's been in the dickens out of that. And people will not believe this to this day, but I ran a 430 gear in the car at Amarillo, but I did it the year before with my front motored car. And I lost, I lost in a, a semifinals to Jerry Glenn in Schultz and Glenn car. And then Garlitz red lit against him in the last round. And uh, I broke a ring gear okay. and I was, I was actually with him and maybe even a little bit ahead of him when I broke the ring gear, but a car ran so damn good that I put it back. I put a 30 back in it for Amarillo. When I unloaded off the trailer in 72, I broke the track record. Wow. Now Clayton wound up breaking that record again and he wound up with the record, but uh, uh, I broke the track record off right off the trailer in 72 with that, Back motored car, and by the way, that back motored car was a Garlitz chassis. Oh, it was okay. Yeah, and I, so I had a Garlitz rear engine car, won the world championship before the old man did. <laughs> yeah, he didn't win till what seventy five. Seventy five, yeah. Yeah, I, re I remember that race and the whole Herm Peterson and the <laughs> the the paycheck waiting to somebody to knock off Gary Beck, which we're going to be yeah. interviewing Gary Beck here in a few weeks. That's, you know, <laughs> I'm going to ask him about that. Um, well, I happened to, I did not, I did not, I wasn't racing full-time in 75 okay. and I was driving her up for other people here and there. So in 75, the old man calls me one night and he said, Jim, what are you doing? 
you going to Ontario? I goes, no. And he goes, I'm trying to get TC to go, but he said, he won't go unless you go and help also. Will you come to Ontario and help us work on the car? And I goes, yeah. So he paid for my plane fare and a motel and stuff like that. But I went out there and I actually worked on the old man's car uh, when we had that deal going with Beck back and forth. <laughs> and they, they talk about, and, and I, and kudos to, to uh, Schumacher when he wanted having to win that last round and whatever a few years ago, but you know, the old man to go out there, he had to win the race. He had to set the record on ET and speed yeah. to do that. And he did it. So that to me in my eyes was a bigger challenge than what Tony Schumacher had at that time, you know, I, I agree. What they're what both, they're both wonderful. Don't get me wrong there, yeah. but it was it was really they it was it was a tough deal. But I mean, we knew it when he left the start line in that five sixty three pass. Uh, I was on one side of the car and TC was on the other, and the old man left and he got about two hundred feet and TC looked over at me and I gave it my thumb. That car left and it went up on a tire and was gone. <laughs> and it was we knew it was going hard. Well, and it. it it's one of them interesting pieces of history. And, you know, uh, a lot of people we're back in now I, I'm back in from the edit. Um, you know, with, with respect to Garlitz, a lot of people, you know, Garlitz was very successful. Yes. But what, what a lot of people forget is that it wasn't until 1975 when he won his first win. Well, it wasn't Winston then was it anyway, his world championship wasn't until was 75. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. you know, and, and, you a great name, TC, you know, that guy, him and Connie Swingle. And it's amazing how much of their help went in behind the scenes with him. Well, uh, you know, Swingle was the one that built all the chassis yeah. and, and, and TC made all the parts for him and all the knickknacks and stuff. But Swingle was uh, very intelligent, yeah. uh, very good welder. I mean, one day I watched him weld two beer cans together. Seriously, it's <laughs> really, yeah, he tigged it together, uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and the welds look beautiful on it. But I mean, he was that talented, but uh, he just is. And the only reason I bought a Garlitz car at that time was I was watching some of the other rear end cars not handle so well and crash. Yeah. Uh, Foster was one and two, two of the Woody cars crashed pretty violently and I thought no and that scared me a little bit and I'd watched the old man's car and it was that Pat Foster car he damn near killed himself in that thing out at what was it at Lions or OCIR when he ran that yeah 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 uh, I can't think back now who was the other one that crashed but another one did Dwayne Ogg was the only one that won a race with one of them really uh and but the old man's car's handle I figured well okay if that's if, if that thing's handling so much better and on a string, that's what I want. So uh, I had, matter of fact, I left, I was at a race, I had had a race in Miami, Hollywood, and I kicked the crankshaft right out of the bottom of a 392, the only four bolt main motor I ever ran in a 92. I ran Baladon girdles on everything, and I kind of got talked into this new deal. Well, the I think the fifth pass on it, something like that. I drove over the crankshaft and <laughs> was on fire at 230 mile an hour in the lights I was. And I and it was not a great experience. So on my way back up to Ohio, I went through Sefner and I said, 
how long is it going to swingle? How long is it going to take you to build me one of them damn back motor cars? <laughs> and uh, so they built the chassis, and then I had all. I just went down and picked the bare chassis up and did everything else, and had Burgessler build the body for that one. And uh, when I started racing it, that I knew the first weekend I was out in it, it was going to be good because it was just like it was a dream to drive. It was as easy as driving my Woody cars. Well, I know that Carl Olson told me one time that when they made the, you know, they were, they were hesitant to go to the rear engine with, with, you know, cool and Olson just because of the handling issues. But he said the night we made our first run and ran two tenths of a second quicker than we'd ever run before. He said, we, it was a done deal. We were sold, you know, did you have that same experience when you, Oh yeah. Yeah. And you know, you know, I used to get a kick out of the guy saying, well, you don't, you're not going to know where the tail of the car is. Well, where are you at in your passenger car? You know, I mean, same diff, you know, and uh, a second, uh, the, the second weekend I was out with it, it was at uh, WCS meet at Indy and I went out and I kicked the tires loose. Well, when I kicked the tires loose, I, instead of, you know, brake handling it and, and whatever, I just stayed in the throttle. I said, well, let's see where this thing's going to go. And it just kind of went out there and sashayed around and I brought it right back straight and cool. You know where it's at. Everything. I mean, it just felt good. You knew you were confident at that point. So, yeah. So, I, you in in seventy two, you won the you won the world championship, and that that race was held back then. It wasn't a Pomona race. It was at uh, Amarillo, Amarillo, Texas. Right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, also that year, I have to ask you. Uh, well, let's not pass that point. Seventy two. What makes that race your world championship? so important in the history of the sport was that it was the first time a rear engine car had won the world championship. Correct. Correct. So the other question I wanted to ask you about, about the year 72 was, were you part of that PRA deal down in Tulsa when, you know, they, they bypassed the U S nationals and went down there 71 and 72 Garlitz race in Tulsa. Did you, were, did you participate in that? Yes. Okay. Cause the money was there. And my understanding was that's what it was about, right? It was really about trying to get a better payout for the drivers. Correct. And I, and I felt that way, as I said earlier. I, if, if you're going to win, when it's your day to win, you're going to win. I don't care where you're at. And if you can win a big dollar race rather than a small dollar race, so be it. You know, if you're going to wear, wear your equipment out. You might as well try for the big money. Were, were you there both years of that race, 71 and 72? Yes. Well, and I, I have, I came across some footage one time. It was just some eight millimeter film that somebody had shot of, I think it was 1972. And I guess the, what it was hotter than blazes down there. And what, what was that race like for you guys? I mean, it, was it, a, was it the same kind of deal as the U S nationals where you got a hundred cars there, that whole thing or not? Well, there wasn't that many cars, but uh, I don't recall what the actual car count was now, but it surely was a full field. Let's put it that way. And uh, uh, it, it was a it was a tough race. There's no doubt about that. In seventy in seventy three, I kicked the motor apart and was on fire going through the lights. There, that, that was not a good race for me. There, <laughs> I heard some stuff pretty. Bad. It was expensive race. Let's put it that way. But uh, it, it it was good. You, you know, Randy, we're talking about car counts and whatever. We, we, we back up and we only had like four or five national events at that time, but you had races like the national dragster open and the Turkey trots and the Canadian American meet at Windsor, Ontario and such like that, those type of things that eventually evolved into us having more national meets. 
you know, that 16 car show that we had, like the turkey trots, there'd be 60 cars there for that thing. I, I won that. I won that in a front-motored car and a back-motored car, as did Garlitz. And I think the five years it was there, Marvin Schwartz won it the fifth time. So, but but those those are the type of meets that were. You think a 16 car said it was tough as nails because there were so many good cars, and not just from East Coast. I mean, there was a bunch of them Texas cars there. Yeah. And boy, there were some hard cars to beat out of Texas. I can tell you that. Well, Larry Brown told me that that 72 race at, you know, where I've got the, I've got the picture hanging up behind me here of where he launched the engine right up over the top of his car in 72, you know, that yes. famous Steve Reyes photo. He told me that that race was one of the toughest races he was ever involved in. He goes, it was just a dog fight right to the end of that race. It, it was, it was. And, uh, I think 70, 72 race out there, I think, is where Weeby and Weeby got cross-threaded and got into Jeb Allen and yeah, yeah. Burnt, burnt Jeb pretty bad and stuff. That was that was a bad, bad accident. I was that, standing on the starting line when that happened. I was standing right behind Buster and Mike there. <laughs> watching. There, there's a pretty famous picture. We'll put that up over the top of this. There's a pretty famous picture of actually Jeb Allen and Weeby are both in the air in that picture. It's an amazing yes. photograph. I, I'm just glad they both survived that one. That wasn't, uh, wasn't good. I, you know, I've, it's, you get kind of cold, I guess, as a human being, when you're there at a race and you, somebody right ahead of you gets hurt bad or maybe dies. And then you got to get back in your car and do, do all the right things and the best thing. And, and, you know, I'm just now finding out what I did back then was dangerous. People telling me how dangerous them front motor cars were. I never knew that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's funny. It's funny you would say that because here's another one of these things that Carl Olson brought up when I was talking with him about his racing career. He said, you know, you just, you, he goes, a friend of yours would go out and get in a bad wreck and they'd haul him away in the ambulance and you just never even thought about it. You got in your car. And right. made your pass. You just didn't think about it. it. And that's just how it was. I mean, if you're gonna if you're gonna be a race car driver, you gotta you gotta be a race car driver, I guess. Yeah. And uh, it 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 was it was so good. I uh, you know I've had some weird things happen to me on a drag strip. Uh, this would have been a regional press meet at Thompson, Ohio, in 1970. Uh, they had about 10,000 people in there for the fans that night, big show. And we had a lot of cars, a lot of fuel cars. And it, and, uh, it was a final round and I was running against Gary Biggins in the Blue Angels car out of Massillon, Ohio. And we both do our burnouts and they roll us back. No, Gabe rolled Gary back, I had a reverser. So I backed up anyway. Uh, do our dry hops and Gary puts the pre-stage on. I put the pre-stage on. I took another pump on a brake handle and I always had a habit of looking down track before I went back to the tree and put my stage bulb on. And the Thompson kind of went down and went over the hill and shut down. And something was flicking. It's kind of going like that down there, man. So I'm still sitting there with Reese and Gary's got his RPMs up and I mean, I'm holding him up bad, but something don't look right. And the starters going, giving me the finger to come on up, you know, well, 
Now he turns around and I'm pointing like this. And he sees my finger pointing and he turns and looks down track. And I knocked the fuel shut off down and shut my car off. And he looks at Biggins and gives him a shut off. A guy landed an airplane in the shutdown at 12.30 at night and was taxiing up the damn drag strip. <laughs> now, now it, 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 it is a funny deal, but think about that. What would have happened if, if I hadn't seen that? And there's the two of us were going down through there at 200 miles an hour. And this airplane, 172 Cessna is what it was. And here's this airplane. Somebody's going to be in bad shape. Maybe all three of us. Who knows? What do you drive off the track at that speed to try to miss it? Or do you duck? What do you, you know, who knows what to do? <laughs> that was, and, and George Eisenhart, who was managing Dragway 42 at that time, and Ann Thompson at that time, George comes running out of the tower and asks, him, what the hell are you doing? He said, well, I thought it was an airport. And I remember George's line to me. He said, well, you think 10,000 people had come out here to watch you land that little airplane here at 1230 <laughs> at night? <laughs> that, that was one of the weird ones that happened to me another time. Uh, we were at uh, Saginaw, Michigan. And I'm on a solo run in the right lane. And I'm at about, and this was in the front motor car. I'm about the thousand foot mark. And uh, here comes a pickup truck and the lights going driving right across the track in front of me like this. Oh. And I mean, I'm close to him. I never lifted. I went like this and back like this. So I slid this way and then slid behind him. Fortunately, I was on a solo pass. So it did not. I mean, I took because I was going to hit somebody if they were in the left lane. I couldn't hit the pickup truck broadside. I went around and man, when I got down the other end, I had Dave Metcalf, who I grew up with and helped me all them years. Uh, he pushing me. I bet we were going 70 mile an hour down the return road. Boy, I wanted some of that boy. And uh, I get down and I can't remember his name. His first name was Bill, the manager of the place. And he's waving his arms like this. And he said, Jim, he used to work for me. He's been escorted by the police from the racetrack. He is not here. Well, that takes your wind out of your sails, you know? And I, what the heck was he thinking? He says, I have no idea. We took him out of the truck and put him in a sheriff's department car and they left with him. <laughs> so, you know, these kind of stories, are, this is why I love doing, doing what I do because you only hear these stories in drag racing. It's just, it was some of the stuff that went on was just wild. I mean, you guys out, the, when you guys were out on a match race circuit, I mean, I've heard so many stories, which of course can't be repeated here about the things that used to go on in between the races. It was almost much more fun in between the races than it was at the races. It was a zoo. <laughs> That's what I always said. It was like a traveling freak show out there. You guys, <laughs> it was something else, you know, and it, I've always, I've always been a little jealous of that because I, I don't know if I would have survived it myself being, being a young guy. I, I know what I was like, but I mean, it was like a rolling party out there and what, what good times, what great memories, right? Well, oh yeah. I mean, I, you know, it's all the, is he had as much fun during the week or on the weekends at nights afterwards and whatever in the bar. Because uh, hell, everybody we used to have to haul our stuff back to the motels, you know, up until about, I don't know, in mid-70s before you could leave your trailer at the racetrack even. 
And so you haul your stuff back and then you take a shower and everybody go to the bar because that's where everybody congregated. And, and I mean, then the first liar didn't have a chance. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, Larry Brown told me, he said, you know, this was, this was in an era before cell phones. So the only way you got to communicate with your friends was at the racetrack because during That's the week, right. everybody was either working or, 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 or going from one place to another. So it was like a big social gathering. Well, everybody had jobs, you know, I mean, we all worked two jobs and, uh, and uh, I was, I was got married in 1962 and, and during those years, I had a couple of kids in the mid '60s, and then one in the early '70s. And and uh, uh, so you take your family with you sometimes. If, they, if you were more than one day, you'd take your family. If it was a one night show or something, no, you wouldn't do that. Because but uh, it, you know, and you got to meet all the other families also. But you also had to have a job that you could get away. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I became a. When I got out of the army, I went into the body. I was a body man and I learned that trade. And then uh, Dave, who I talked about a minute ago there, he, my buddy, he helped me. He was a crane operator. He was making more money in five days than I was making in six. I said, well, so I learned how to do that. And then I, so I belonged to the operating engineers, a local union out of Cleveland. And that was a, a, a hiring hall. If you, Wanted to leave, you just called the hall to send somebody else out on your rig. And then you go, when you come back into town, you put your out of work and they'd send you out on a crane. So, and that worked good. And then I got on with one local contractor that had, he had five cranes. And uh, he, he says, why do you keep quitting when I got you out in a job? And I said, well, I race cars. And he made a deal with me. If I would come to work every day I was in town, he'd keep me on a payroll all year long. Well, that was a win-win for me because I could go race whenever I wanted to and then come go right back and go to work, collect an operating engineer's pay, which was top shelf at that time. So, I mean, that, that's what I did for years. I was an operating engineer. Well, you, uh, and, and we'll get into this in, in a little bit, but you, you ended up in the pretty much the high performance, uh, you know, automotive industry at one point yes. later on in your career. Yes. But before we get there, you know, what, during this period of time, I mean, you, you, did you officially retire from racing in like it was 76? Were you completely done or did you continue to do stuff after that? No, I think the last time I drove a car for somebody else was in 78 and Randy, I'm sitting in the car and I see a bunch of guys running around and nobody seems to know what the heck they're doing. And I'm thinking to myself at that point, if these guys are so confused here, how was this thing put together? And I'm getting ready to go out there and go 250 miles an hour at that time and or, or, or whatever. And, and I was in California and uh, I thought, all right, so I finished that weekend. When I got off the plane and come home, I walked in the house and I threw my fire suit bag on the floor, helmet and suit. My wife looked at me and said, do you mean it? And I said, I'm all done. And so I didn't drive anything else until I went to Bonneville in 1995 and drove a streamline. Okay. And yes, you know, you're going fast, but it was the most boring race car ride I ever had in my life. <laughs> you against the salt. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm glad I got to do it, but it's like flying in an airplane at 300 miles an hour. You 
how do you know how fast you're going? It's not like driving a dragster, I can tell you that. When you're between the guardrails, and well, back when they didn't have guardrails, but even, even knew then you're going fast, but the guardrails in concrete, I mean, it's a whole lot different than driving in Bonneville because it's so, it's a surreal place to go to. I love it, but uh, it just wasn't, the adrenaline don't flow like it does when you're at uh, in a fuel car. Yeah. Well, want again, you know, a lot of, a lot of people remember you as the 72, you know, top fuel world champ, but realistically in, in the world of drag racing before 72, um, you guys were all, and I, I consider all of you to have been innovators in the sport because you had to figure it out on the fly. You had to figure out how to make those parts work or modify them. Uh, Jerry Newman, who I don't know if you know, Jerry Newman, the oh, nitro I've known Jerry since he, yeah, since they had a car out of Milwaukee. Sure. I know him. Yeah, he we he he talked about how you know they pulled springs out of the clutch uh and uh tried to get the you know not as much tension on that clutch to get it to slip more. And he goes, We were we were trying that stuff back in you know 68, 69 to try and get better traction, try to get us going down the track better or riding the clutch pedal. So you guys were all innovators in the sport. That's just my opinion about this, and I think it holds true. Well, we were, yeah, I, I guess in, in my, as I told, as I told him when I got inducted to the hall of fame, I, I was a kid with no money, some pretty good mechanical abilities, but a whole lot of want. Yeah. And that is what, that was me. And, uh, and I just wanted, I didn't, I didn't like losing. I liked winning, but I liked working on them as much as I liked driving them. I mean, I really, cause I, tried to make things work better and last longer and figure out how to run hard, but not hurt stuff. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, it, it, it was a good time. And I, I mean, I got to go from a little short car spinning the tires all the way through to the flexi flyer front motored cars to the back motored cars and learning all that stuff. And I mean, I saw the whole deal of it, you know, slipper clutches. Just, it was wonderful. Well, I, you know, and again, for our younger, our younger audience out there, we, this was, it, it's not like it is today with the, the drivers who fly in and put their fire suit on and take some pictures and jump in a car and go, you guys in between races, were back at the shop, working on your cars, figuring out how to fix the engine, figuring out how to make it go faster, trying to figure out everything about it. It, it wasn't just a driving job. Well, that's right. Well, that was after you came home for work. You did that <laughs> <laughs> out in the shop till two o'clock in the morning, get up and do it again. Right. Exactly. So exactly. Uh, hall of fame, uh, international drag racing hall of fame. I'm looking down at my notes here, 2005 East mm -hmm. coast drag racing hall of fame, 2009, uh, lifetime achievement award. Was that an NHRA lifetime achievement award in 2008? Yes. Yes. So, I mean, <laughs> I'm also, also in the, uh, that Legion of honor from East coast Motorsports Legion of honor, that deal at, at York, Pennsylvania. Yeah. Uh, I'm in that one also. Uh, yeah. When you get old, they keep giving you awards. <laughs> <laughs> well